0: Again, thanks to everybody that came out for the workday yesterday. For those that didn't, we know who you are, and uh, you can uh, you can book. You know, we'll, we'll, we've we'll got time slots available. Just talk to Mark, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll find something for you to do. <coughs> okay, I'm kidding. We don't know who you are, but we do have time slots available. So, uh, today is Palm Sunday, and uh, that's a... It's always an interesting tradition uh, from my perspective. I was certainly raised where we didn't make a big deal of Palm Sunday or really many of the uh, religious Christian holidays. And and I've come to appreciate it over the years. And uh, Palm Sunday uh, begins what is often referred to as Holy Week. And one of the things that I think I say this every year, and I probably will for as long as I can anticipate being in this position, is that during this week, we can, at any moment in time, just about, pause and say, what was Jesus doing on this day? Uh, Most of the the books of the, uh, most of the Gospels spend about 20%, at least, 20% uh, of their space is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. And so, it, it's important, and it, obviously it's important, um, but I, I love just from having the opportunity to slow down and reflect on, on why did the gospel writers slow down? What, why was this so important to them that they, they you know, spread this out and took time detailing a different event every day? I think it's every day except Wednesday, um, has, we're told what Jesus is uh, doing? Some churches um, sort of mark this out by having services during the week, and maybe you've seen them advertised. There's Palm Sunday, there's a, a special service on Thursday uh, that, uh, where they talk about both the, the Last Supper and also the foot washing that Jesus did on the Thursday in his uh, humility and service. Then there's the Good Friday service where he talks about uh, his death. Saturday is kind of like a silent Saturday and uh, a time for just pausing and reflecting and then, of course, the joy and the celebration that is Sunday. And so we get to uh, walk through this week with Jesus. And by the time we get to Friday, we can almost do it hour by hour uh, as we were able to mark the, the time. And you can... If you want something more detailed, if you want to do that as a spiritual discipline this week, I'm sure you can Google it and find a timeline that, uh, that you can follow along throughout the week, and I encourage you uh, to do that. But it begins on Palm Sunday, where Jesus uh, rides into Jerusalem as a king. Uh, he is consciously, many of the things that were prophesied about Jesus or about the Messiah, he had no control over. He had no control over where he was born. It had been prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Well, he couldn't control that. He either was or he wasn't. Um, and But this entrance into Jerusalem was regarded as a messianic prophecy. And Jesus chose to fulfill it. He chose to get a donkey. He chose to ride in. And the city applauds him celebrates him. Uh, And and that was appropriate because he was the king. That was why, how he was entering. I'm going to put up a little reading, uh, since it is Palm Sunday, a video that is a reading of the uh, particular, his entrance, it's short, and uh, then we'll get into the sermon today.
1: "'Gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, "'the foal of a donkey.' "'The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. "'They brought the donkey and the colt "'and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. "'A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, "'while others cut branches from the trees "'and spread them on the road. "'The crowds that went ahead of him "'and those that followed shouted, "'Hosanna to the Son of David!' Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven.
0: And so today is a celebration about the coming of the King. And uh, we know where the week goes, don't we? And, And what's really interesting is we have today as a celebration about the coming of a King, we have next Sunday as a celebration about the resurrection and uh, the ascension of the king to the throne of heaven. But in between, we go through the cross. And so it's an interesting bookend to the week. Today is our final conversation on the buddy bench from this particular sermon series. Next week we'll begin a a new sermon series. And uh, there are invitations down there, as uh, Ron mentioned earlier that you can pick up and hand out. There's a, a blank space on the back that you can put a little note, you can put your phone number, uh, that you can encourage somebody, uh, put someone's name on there, uh, encourage them to uh, come along and join us next week. Just as a reminder, it means that this room may be more crowded than it has been for a while, which would be, be great. Uh, if that makes you uncomfortable, Downstairs is masks only and spacing. So we have the television set up down there. You can stream the worship service. Um, We have printouts of all the slides available, and uh, you can follow along. And uh, and so we want to fill this space and uh, have that also available for those who prefer. But today, uh, so that's next week. Today we have our final conversation on this series. That is uh, really it. Could go a little bit longer. Uh, As we go into, we could go into Acts. I've kind of been mostly chronological with this, uh, but we could go into Acts and look at some of the women there. But uh, we're not going, as we close, we're not actually going to have a conversation. I I want to spend some time today telling you about the woman who is sitting on the bench. If you remember, bonus points if you do, if you remember the very first sermon from this series, I described the Buddy Bench as a seat in the playground. That if you see someone sitting on it, the intent is that you go over to them. And you sit with them and you talk or you invite them to come and join you and play with you. And uh, I I know it's not just, uh, this is actually a a bench at the uh, Lakeshore Elementary school, and uh, it's not the only one. There are other schools that have buddy benches. It's kind of a thing in different places. And, um, but, but I don't know what your school was like, but in my small Christian school, very small Christian school, um, despite the best efforts of the administration, of the staff, of the teachers of the parents and of all the responsible adults who wanted everybody to get along and welcome and accept everybody, wanted everybody to be buddies, there was always at least, at least one kid that nobody wanted to have anything to do with. That the idea of sitting down, instead of playing football, and sitting down with that kid on a bench, just to keep them company, just to be their buddy, that just wasn't ever going to happen. Maybe you were the one that wouldn't sit with them, maybe you are the one that nobody sat with. Maybe your school was completely different to mine. Throughout church history, though, the woman sitting on our bench today has been the woman that nobody wanted to sit with. Mary Magdalene. You see, Mary Magdalene had been the woman that everyone whispers about. There was something strange about her. In fact, there's some overlap between this week's message and last week's sermon. If you missed last week, you can always go back on the YouTube channel or on the the website. Uh, We have the podcast there. The sermons are available and catch up. But we read last week in Luke chapter 8, and verse 2, it tells us that Mary had seven demons cast out of her. That would make you strange, right? Like, like, we're not told what these demons did to her. We're not told how they made her behave or feel. Just that she, once she met Jesus, they were gone. But it would make you strange, I think, whatever their effect upon you was. About the year 600 A.D., Pope Gregory the Great made the not-so-great connection that Mary's seven uh, seven demons signified that she had broken these seven sins, deadly sins. There's no real reason for saying that the church had come up with this list of seven deadly sins quite on their own in the 600-year period, and he just said, "There's a seven. There's a seven. Aha! Uh-huh. She was a bad person. That's why she had seven demons, because she had committed all seven of those deadly sins." But really, Pope Gregory seems to be, have been confused on a couple of different events, not only about the number seven, but also the actual stories about, uh, well, not about Mary, but the actual stories in the Bible. I'm going to put up a, a little chart here. You see, there are two stories in the, in the Gospels that are somewhat similar. In Luke chapter 7, uh, again, we touched on this last week, and in growth groups, uh, there is a woman whose name is not given, and she comes to Jesus, and she she is just so grateful at, her, at having been forgiven and accepted into the kingdom of God and having a future that she, she comes with a jar of uh, perfume. She wants to anoint his feet. But when she gets there, she breaks down. She is crying. Her tears are falling on, her, on his feet. She wipes them, dries them with her hair, and then puts the uh, perfume on them. It, it's a little awkward, okay? If it sounds awkward, it is. And, and other guests there at the time were shocked at her behavior. It's memorable. That's in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 8, we're introduced to Mary Magdalene, who has seven deeds. We're told that that woman, uh, in Luke 7, was a sinful woman. In fact, the host of the dinner says, Jesus, why are you allowing this sinful woman to do that? Now, for some reason, whenever... It seems that people saw a woman was described as sinful. They didn't think of her as a thief or a gossip. They automatically went to, oh, she's a sexual sinner. She's a prostitute. And so they assume there that the nameless woman in Luke 7 is a prostitute. In Luke 8, we're introduced to Mary Magdalene, who has um, the, the, the seven demons. And that's all we're told about her. Then in John chapter 12, we have another story. And this is about another woman named Mary. Now, you know Mary because she's usually paired with Martha. And uh, Lazarus is her brother, Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. Now, in John chapter 12, this is just before. In fact, it happens on the Saturday before Palm Sunday. It happened yesterday. They have a dinner in... Uh, at last, Jesus and his disciples have a dinner in, at Lazarus's house, and perhaps they—Mary uh, is aware of what's coming. She senses that the tide has turned against Jesus, and he is determined to go to Jerusalem. And so she chooses this moment to get her expensive perfume and to anoint him. And again, in a somewhat awkward scene, she uh, pours the ointment on his feet and then dries it with her hair. Okay? Um, I don't know what's with the hair. But the two ideas, these two stories have similarities, right? Feet, perfume, and hair. Uh, There's a woman named Mary, and in Luke 8, there's a woman named Mary. Okay. So having set that scene, Pope Gregory seems to have put all of these three stories into a blender. Hit the button, let it go for a little while, and then out pops someone. Out pops a sinful woman named Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with ointment and dried them with her hair. Now, a sinful woman named Mary. Who's the most sinful woman named Mary in the Bible? Well, it's Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons cast out of her, whose seven demons signify the seven deadly sins. And we know that the sinful woman is a prostitute, so Mary Magdalene must be a prostitute, right? Nobody's nodding. It's complicated logic if it's logic but from that point on and maybe it was before that maybe he wasn't the first maybe he was just recording what other people were already saying but from that moment on Mary Magdalene was regarded throughout history as a prostitute and if you look at her in in art religious art over the centuries you'll see her as young sometimes scantily clad uh... you know sort of throwing herself at Jesus and that's her reputation as a sinful woman who repented and became a disciple of Jesus. Never mind the fact that most of the time in the Gospels when people have demons, or we're told that they have demons in them, um, they're suffering physical and mental pain and anguish and illness none of them are inspired to sin by their demons. Okay? So to say that because she has these demons, therefore she's acting in a sinful way, uh, just doesn't seem to, to match up. All right. But that's not the only rumor that's going around the playground of history about Mary. There's one early gospel that was written by the Gnostic and I'm not going to go into who they were, but they were a heretical uh, sect in the early church, and uh, they were rejected. You know, the the mainstream church went in this direction, and they went off in sort of this mysterious uh, mysterious way over there. And, And in their writings, they have one book there that throws out the idea that Mary Magdalene was married to Jesus. Now, maybe you've heard that idea before. It was picked up by an author in recent, well, not super recent, but we'll call it recent years, Dan Brown. And he wrote a best-selling book that later became a movie called The Da Vinci Code, okay? where it suggests that uh, Mary and Jesus were not only married, but that Jesus never died, and that they had children and lived happily ever after. Um, and so that is one of the accounts of Mary Magdalene. Uh, And then a third one that maybe you have heard, uh, anybody, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, if you've seen or heard the hit musical uh, from the 1970s, Jesus Christ Superstar, right? I think the only song I know from that off the top of my head is Mary Magdalene singing I Don't Know How to Love Him, where she is a a reformed (laughs) prostitute that is in love with Jesus, has these feelings, doesn't know what to do with them, and what it is to, to, you know, how to express herself towards him. So what we see consistently, whether it be Pope Gregory, whether it be Da Vinci Code, whether it be Jesus Christ Superstar, is this idea that Mary is, um, what do I want to say, of, of sexual ill repute. Okay? And that there's this sexual tension between her and Jesus. And, uh and, and, Ultimately, I guess, that she reforms and becomes a a disciple of Jesus. But as a consequence, as so often happens in the playground, no one takes time to get to know the real Mary. So as we see her sitting on the bench today, I want to take a moment to introduce you, perhaps, to the real Mary. I want to consider five things about her that we can know for sure. The first one, and actually the first two come out of last week's sermon. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. She is grouped; she is listed in Luke 8, verse 2, with a group of women who follow Jesus. They've all been healed either of demons or of disease, and they then follow Jesus in his ministry. Um, I I think we perhaps don't necessarily recognize how radical this was that women were given the opportunity to become students. They were not given the opportunity to go to the synagogue and become students. But Jesus allows them to follow him and to be his students. And we see Jesus throughout the Gospels frequently uh, breaking some of the barriers between genders within the culture. I think of the Samaritan woman. Jesus stops and talks with her. Certainly the apostles come back and they see him talking to her and they're astonished for two reasons. One, she's a Samaritan and they've just had to walk around Samaria in order to to get to Jerusalem. But the other reason is that he is talking to a woman. That was not something that they expected from him. Uh, We we talked about the, the woman who is usually called the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus' attitude towards her was not one of condemnation, which would have been the easy way out, right? But he treats her with respect and instead turns on the religious leaders and says, no, you are the ones who need to look in the mirror about why you're doing what you're doing and why you're treating her this way. Uh, The the woman, or the two women that pour the ointment on Jesus' feet uh, are looked down on by other people, and Jesus says, "No, this is appropriate at this point in time." And so we we see Jesus consistently welcoming women into his circle in a way that was uh, inappropriate for the culture by the cultural norms of his day. So that's the first thing: is that Jesus becomes a disciple, someone who actually follows him around Galilee. The second thing is that Mary uh, was a financial patron of Jesus and the disciples, that she contributed from her own purse, from her own wealth, uh, to support the ministry of Jesus, to pay for his food, his gasoline, you know, the different things that he had to do to get from place to place. Um, Now, one of the things we want to think about here is that where did she get her wealth from? If you look at the Pictures and artwork or even movies, Mary's always a contemporary in terms of age of Jesus. She's a young woman, usually an attractive woman, right? Sort of fits that stereotype that's existed for centuries. But there's a high likelihood that for Mary to have the uh, wealth to be able to support Jesus and the disciples in the way that she did, that there weren't that many ways for her to get wealth. Uh, one would be that she came from a wealthy family and it had been given to her husband as a dowry when she was married. Okay? Another might be that she was married to someone who was wealthy and that person had passed away. And, and so she had his wealth you know, belong to her. So it could be equally possible that Mary is an older woman who follows Jesus that has accumulated wealth, that's been married for decades before her husband passed away, and now she, think of Anna at Jesus' birth, right, who had been waiting for the Messiah, and, uh, and that she's able to contribute to his um, upkeep. One of the things I think it's worth mentioning there is we talk about the relationship between Jesus and the women that were around him, is that Jesus... Um, didn't consider it a threat to his masculinity to be supported by uh, the woman or, or by the women. Uh, but uh, that was he had enough security about who he was that that wasn't threatening to him. So the third thing we know about Mary is that she was one of the female leaders among Jesus' disciples. And, and I say she was a, a leader... Because she's mentioned by name in every gospel. That's pretty unique. Or not just pretty, that is unique amongst the uh, women found in the gospels. And and on top of that, she's often the first woman who was mentioned. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, uh, there it's at the tomb. And we're told that Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary. How would you like to be the other Mary, <laughs> right? But, but Mary Magdalene is often the first person who is listed. She seems to be someone who was respected, uh, someone who was present and uh, recognized as a leader amongst the group and known to the people who were reading these, not just one gospel, but all of the gospels. The fourth thing is that Mary was a key eyewitness of Jesus. She, was, she followed him around Galilee. Yeah? Followed him around Galilee, but then also she was a key eyewitness of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, other than Luke 8.2, all the references to Mary Magdalene are found during the final days of his life, or, or after his life. Uh, so... I know this is quite detailed; you don't have to see it all, but down the left hand uh, left hand column there we have each of the gospels across the top, we have the cross, the burial, the empty tomb, and the risen Christ and you can see Mary Magdalene in bold um, showing up all over that in in all the gospels and in some instances at each of those locations and and so I want you for a moment to consider how much of the gospel account we have today because of Mary. How much of our Bible do we have today, at the most important point, do we have because of Mary? So we know that um, when Jesus died on the cross, where were the apostles? They're in an upper room. They're hiding out of fear of the religious leaders of the day. So how do they know what happens at the cross? How do they know what Jesus said on the cross? Who was there? The women, we're told, are the ones that were there. And the disciple who Jesus loved. Possibly John, possibly Lazarus. Uh, But it's, it's the women that are the ones that are there. At some point, the women got with one of the authors, one of the writers, and they said, let us tell you what happened. And then think of the moments when Mary is the only one who's there. All the stories about Mary, or Mag- well, not all the stories, but the story of Mary Magdalene's encounter with Jesus, found in John chapter 20 after his resurrection, she was the only one there. She had to go back and tell someone else. And, and they wrote it out based on her account of what she had to say. Certainly the Holy Spirit was working through all of that, but there's every reason to think that she was an important eyewitness. She was a witness to his death. She was a witness to his burial. She was a witness, according to Matthew 28, to the earthquake, to the angel, perhaps even seeing the stone roll away or getting there just after it was rolled away. She was a witness to the resurrected Jesus herself. And she went and she told the apostles about it. And that brings us to the fifth thing we can know about Mary Magdalene, that she, she's been given by some the title, an apostle to the apostles. And, and that maybe sounds a little heretical, but the word apostle means messenger. Okay? The twelve, who we usually think of as apostles, they were messengers of the gospel of Jesus, based on being eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry. Mary Magdalene was a messenger of the resurrection of Jesus. She was a a witness that he actually died. She was a witness that he was actually buried. And she was a witness that she spoke to him after his resurrection. And she was a witness to the twelve. That's how they knew. That's how Peter and John knew to run to the tomb. That's how... After they'd gone home, she encounters Jesus and goes back and says to them, Okay, it's not just an empty tomb. Now it's Jesus who's alive himself. I've seen him. They still don't believe her, but that's on them, not her. And then Jesus appears to them a little bit later. And so she was a witness to the witnesses, an apostle to the apostles. Today is Palm Sunday. Oops, there's one more. We heard earlier the reading of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem as a humble king. The crowds didn't know what to do with a humble king. And just a few days later, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The disciples that were with Jesus at the Last Supper didn't know what to do with a Messiah who was crucified. And so they went to an upper room and locked the door so that they would be safe from the Jewish leaders but it was Mary and the women with her who had received healing and deliverance from Jesus who were at the cross. Her dedication to Jesus extended beyond Palm Sunday. Her dedication, her commitment to Jesus continued past the Garden of Gethsemane. What she experienced and knew about Jesus carried her to the cross, carried her to His grave, and carried her back to the grave after it was empty, allowing her to be the first witness and messenger of the resurrection. This is a Mary that we don't have to avoid on the buddy bench. I think this is a Mary that we would like to sit with, that we would like to hear her stories of what happened as she walked around Galilee with Jesus, that we would like to hear her tell of that day, of that Sunday morning when the stone was rolled back, the tomb was empty, and she encountered a risen Jesus and all the thoughts that went through her head and her mind and the emotions that filled her heart, that would be a Mary that we would like to sit with. Having been delivered from the darkness and the pain of her demons, she followed Jesus. But she wasn't a groupie. She was a student. Jesus allowed her to be a student. He accepted her and her financial support. Jesus included her in the life of the kingdom. In Luke chapter 24, verses 7 and 8, uh, we're told here the angels reminded the women of a statement that Jesus had made earlier in His ministry. In, In verse 6, they say, The angels say to the women, He is not here, He has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day, raised again. The angels could say to these women, do you remember what Jesus said? And they could remember because they were there, because they'd been following Him, because they didn't just get healed and then leave Him and then come back later. They were there with Him when He made these statements. And they remembered. And, And when they remembered, then... They go and they tell, well, it's the 11 at this point, 12 minus Judas. And, and, and they, they go and they tell the, the 11 that they've seen the angels. They tell them what the angels said. But part of their telling is reminding the apostles what Jesus said. Do you, they say, do you remember what Jesus said? Do you remember that day we were in that town, we were on that hillside, and he said this? He said that, well, now that's come to pass. The angel said it, I remember it. And so they were interpreting Scripture and they're, they're reminding the 11 of what was going on. That's remarkable in a sense because in, in John, uh, the, the passage in John chapter uh, 20, uh, we're told there that they, they didn't remember. That they, they didn't understand what was happening. They didn't understand why the tomb was empty. Mary Magdalene is never described as a prophet. But in this instance, she was certainly a messenger from God, carrying the greatest message the world has ever known. And on this Palm Sunday, I think our challenge is for us to examine ourselves, to consider our faith, and and to say, is our commitment to follow Jesus like that of the crowd on the Sunday? that was there, that had a great time, that was so happy, that was celebrating so much, but then when Monday and Tuesday and the rest of the week rolled around, it evaporated. Or is our faith like that of the apostles who were there on the Sunday, and they stayed with Jesus, and they kept going, but then they ran into the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane. And, And like Peter, they relied on their own strength, and they 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 drew their swords, they attempted to fight, they said, we know the solution for this, and then when that didn't work out, they ran and they scattered and they locked their doors. How does our faith respond when we run into these dark places, when we encounter the opposition and the difficulties? Do we go to our own strengths? Or do we depend upon God? Or is our faith like that of Mary, that is able to, to persevere through all of that, that is able to stand at the bottom of the cross is able to watch Jesus suffer and ultimately die, and then is able to go to the tomb. Even though her Messiah is dead, she hasn't given up hope. She wants to take care of him. She still knows the reality of what he has done to her life. And she says, I need to honor him. He needs to be buried. He needs to be cared for. He needs to be respected. She didn't understand what was happening, but her faith carried her on. And, And she arrives at that empty tomb, and because she persevered, she experiences the hope that comes with the resurrection. And so I want to encourage you today that if you're in that difficult place, if you're in that garden, if you're up against that obstacle, if you're not sure what your next step is, if you've got questions or doubts or you don't understand what's happening, all of that is part of Holy Week. And I want to encourage you to persevere. Because there is an empty tomb. And there is hope. And there is new life. And Palm Sunday. It's just the beginning of a journey that for all of us can take perhaps a week, perhaps months, or years. But where are we going to end? Will we end with the crowds, with the apostles, or with Mary and the resurrected Jesus? When we get to the fourth verse of this song, I'll invite you to stand if it's convenient for you then.
1: Join me, please. When I survey the
0: wondrous
1: cross, I